Christ is risen. It's good to be back at Sanctuary. Thanks to all of you who've been praying for me as I've been recovering. And I think I am recovering. That's, that's the word we're going with anyway at this point. What I want to share with you today is some reflection on a Lenten prayer. This is tomorrow. Today is the third Sunday in Lent. And this prayer has is known in the Orthodox tradition as the Lenten prayer. And over time, it has come to take that place in my own life. I think about Lent, I think about this prayer and what this prayer embodies. So what I want to do this morning is just reflect a bit on what is said in this prayer, what it has to teach us, and then turn our attention just at the end to John chapter 4, which is the gospel reading for this week, and then pray this prayer together in closing. So that's, that's, the, that's the agenda for today. Before I get to that, I should tell you that my wife said to tell all of you hello. She's hoping to get to come with me again next time, so say a prayer that we can work that out. We have three children, and she works at the seminary as well, so it's a difficult at times for her to be able to come with me, but of course I prefer that, and she prefers that, and I'd appreciate it if you would pray that we can, we can work that out. So to start, I'm going to ask you to read this prayer with me. We'll read it out loud. All of us together, and then at the end, as I said, we'll pray. Now, in the Orthodox tradition, after each petition, the prayers all prostrate themselves and then pray the next petition and prostrate themselves again. So as I move through the sermon, I'll be thinking about whether or not I'll ask you to do that at the end. <laughs> Let's say this together. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But give, rather, the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to your servant. Yea, Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgression and not to judge my brother or sister. For you are blessed unto the ages of ages. Amen. As I said, in the Orthodox tradition in the East, this is the Lenten prayer. It's prayed regularly throughout the Lenten season. And it's an ancient prayer. It's attributed to St. Ephraim the Syrian, 4th century mystic and poet and monastic. And we don't, we don't have any access to the Syriac original. We, we have it in Greek. We have it in Slavonic languages. Here's how we have it in, in English. But it's, a, it's an ancient prayer, at least 1,500 years old, and has been prayed by Christians during the season of Lent for that long. Now, all of us, I'm, I'm assuming, at least most of us, and if not all of us, were raised in Protestant traditions. And in Protestant traditions, we're warned against praying to the saints. But in the process of refusing to pray to the saints, we have unfortunately also lost the habit of praying with the saints. And that's something, a habit we should not have lost. Because I believe that God gives us saints. Roger Ebert, who was maybe one of the great theological voices of the last 50 years, in a film review, <laughs> catching that, right? In a film review about a movie called Household Saints, he opens by saying, saints are a great inconvenience. Saints are a great inconvenience because they disrupt the order of ordinary lives. Saints are a great inconvenience because they disrupt the order of ordinary lives. There's wisdom there. And the saints are those people that God gives us to remind us that the way the world works isn't in fact the way his kingdom works. The saints are people whose lives are so totally given over to God that they give us a glimpse of another kingdom that is not of this world, 
of another rhythm to life, of another way in which life is meant to be lived. And when we cut ourselves off from them, we cut ourselves off from the very grace of God God is trying to give to us. Because as Paul teaches us, there's no way to imitate, imitate Christ without imitating those he draws near to him. Remember what Paul says to his communities. He doesn't say to them, imitate Jesus. What he says to them is, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me as I imitate him. So there's wisdom, I believe, in learning to pray with the saints, learning to pray their prayers after them until they become our prayers. Imitate them until we start to recognize the wisdom that is there, that has sparked out from their life as God has touched them. I think as we reflect this morning on this prayer, I hope that it will start to settle down in your heart as it has in mine and will become your prayer. Because I think the ways in which Ephraim is praying to God are not just telling us something about his heart. They're, they're, they're telling us something. His words are telling us something about what should be in our hearts as well. So let's look at the prayer with that in mind. Notice first how he addresses God. Lord and master of my life. Now, any of us who've grown up in church are used to talking about God in these kinds of terms. To talk about God as king or as master is familiar language. But if you've been around church very long at all and you've taken it with any kind of seriousness, you eventually come to the point where you start to squirm under that language. What does it mean to say God is king? What does it mean to say God rules my life, that he is master of my life? What does it mean to say God has that kind of control over me? And if you haven't squirmed under it, I wonder if you're taking very seriously what we're saying when we say God controls our lives, that God rules us, that we are his servants. Paul even uses the language of slavery. We are his slaves. What does it mean to talk about a relationship with God in which we're the slave and he's the master? We're all comfortable with, with language of God as friend, or language of God as lover, or language of God as father. At least many of us are comfortable with that. But what does it mean to say God is master and I'm slave? I don't know that any of us should be comfortable with that. So long as we take an, an earthly relationship of slave and master and then map that back onto God. And we have a terrible habit of this in our churches because we like to be understood this is the Achilles heel of almost all Christian teaching. We want to be understood. You should have laughed at that. <laughs> Apparently, I don't have the, the, the need to feel understood when I have to explain, explain my jokes. But we do this all the time. Think about how many sermons you've heard around Father's Day that work something like this. They start with an image of a good father, and then they work back to God is like that. But God isn't like that, at least... He's not exactly like that. God is more unlike a good father than God is like a good father. You can't start with human relationships and then map that back onto God by blowing it up to as large a proportions as you can imagine. God is God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we don't discover who God is by starting with what we consider to be good characteristics of a father and then mapping those onto God. We do this as well when we talk about Jesus' sacrifice. We'll take what we consider sacrifice. One of the most common ways this is done is by appealing to veterans of war. 
of soldiers and talking about how they make this great sacrifice. And then we start with that notion of sacrifice and map that back onto Jesus to try to get some kind of purchase on what it means for him to, to lay down his life. But that always leads to misunderstanding and confusion. Because God's mastery of us is not like the way masters in our world master slaves. He told his disciples this. Among the Gentiles, he said, among the nations, the masters lord over those they rule. But it, is, it must not be that way among you. It must not be that way among you. Think about the night before the Last Supper when he gathers his disciples together for a meal and washes their feet. What is he doing in washing their feet? He's showing them that what it means for him to rule their life doesn't look at all like what they expect rulership to look. So I want, I want to say, before we move into this prayer, when we, when we talk about God as master, you need to rest in knowing that his mastery of you, his control of your life, doesn't look at all like the way humans would control your life. That should give you peace. He will master you. He will lord you. He will take control of your life. But it won't be at all like what it would be to be controlled by another human being or be controlled by evil. God's control of our life is freeing. His mastery of us releases us into who we are. So when we pray for God to master us, we are praying for grace. We're praying for the touch of freedom that only God can give. But notice, it is real mastery. God intends to take control of our lives in the way only God can. Notice the way Ephraim prays. He says, God, take from me and give to me. Take from me and give to me. You know what he's acknowledging? Only you can do this. The reason I need you to take control of my life is I can't do this for myself. I can't give this to myself. So you must take it from me and you must give it to me. And at the heart of prayer is this recognition. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God must be God in order for us to be who we're made to be. You must take this from me. You must give this to me. And look at what he asks God to take from him and what he asks God to give to him. Take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. Now, I want you to imagine this as at the innermost core of your being, the deepest circle is this what he calls the spirit of sloth. And out Working from that, the second ring, the wider circle, is despair. Not quite as deep. Still within your heart, but not, not as deep as law. And then out of that grows lust of power. And then finally, it evidences itself in idle talk. Father Alexander Schmiemann, who was an Orthodox theologian, he said this about sloth. Sloth is the root of all other sins because it poisons spiritual energy at its source. It poisons spiritual energy at its source. Now let's stop for just a moment. All of us, of course, are in this season of Lent. We've been making room for God. We've been fasting and praying and meditating. But I wonder how many of us have thought to pray about the spirit of sloth. Many of you are people who are accomplished and successful. You would never think of yourself 
I wouldn't think of myself as lazy, as slothful. Maybe there was a time in my teens where I could have thought that about myself. At least others certainly thought that of me. But not not with all that I have going now. Not with everything that's happening in my life. But when we talk about the spirit of sloth, it really has nothing to do with how active you are or how responsible you are or how many responsibilities you take on. The spirit of sloth that Ephraim is praying against, praying God to deliver him from, is something that's hidden from most of us. But it's a disease of the heart that causes us to despair about God's work in our lives and the lives of our neighbors and our enemies and our friends. And all of us suffer from this disease, at least some of the time, where we just can't believe that God is going to be able to work this out. When I had, to to give you a personal example, I have a good friend, he and his wife entered into a very, very difficult season, and their church as well. The sloth in me said, there's not hope here. There's not hope here. Now, of course, I saw it as being realistic, as knowing the way humans are, understanding that there are some wrongs that are really hard to forgive and get past. But what's underneath that realism is sloth. It's a disease of the heart that believes that God's way really won't work in our world. And that's why once sloth starts to disease you at the core, it starts to express itself in hopelessness, in faintheartedness, in despair, in despondency. Your hope is weakened. Your faith is weakened because you're just not quite sure that God can do this this time. That these people are are perhaps past the redeeming work of God. And so it expresses itself in lust for power. Because lust for power is what you do when you no longer are confident that God will work. You try to put your hands on your own life or on the lives of other people. The moment you give up hope that God will act, you start to act. You start to control it. I heard Sister Margaret Gaines, who was a missionary, she's pastors a small church in Alabama now, but for most of her life, she was a a missionary in Palestine. She said this about about her life. They asked her, give us a a sense of what God has done in your life. And she said, "I, I don't know what to say because I consider myself a day worker, not an architect. She said, I wake up every day and do what I feel like God has put right in front of me. And I have no sense of what God is building of my life. I trust him to be the architect I'm a day worker. But when despair rising up out of sloth dominates our life, we try to become architects, not only of our own lives, but the lives of the people around us. When parents despair, they try to become architects of their children's lives rather than day workers who collaborate with God in raising their children. When teachers despair, they try to become architects for their students rather than collaborating with God to serve the students trusting that God will be at work. When pastors despair, they try to become architects of their people rather than day workers who collaborate with God in nurturing the people of God. When husbands despair, when wives despair, when friends despair, we try to put our hands on and control what's happening, but that always leads to death. That always leads to confusion. That always leads to disease. 
And so Ephraim prays, deliver me from lust of power. And understand that lust for power can be cloaked in religious and pious and well-meaning intentions. Much of our lust for power takes the form of passion for God or passion to see the lost saved. But really what's underlying that is a despondency of God acting. So I must act. I must act. And then ultimately, Ephraim says, it shows itself. This lust for power shows itself in idle talk. Now, idle talk here is not a reference to just lighthearted chatting. He's not saying, deliver me from talking about the weather or deliver me from discussing sports. What he's saying is, deliver me from any kind of talk that doesn't produce life in the people who hear it. Idle talk is any kind of talking that results in anything other than building up, encouraging, directing to God, bringing to life what God has planted on the inside of those people. So idle talk can take all kinds of forms. Idle talk can sound serious and philosophical and theological and pastoral, but if the result of all of that talking is not life, it's idle talk. Idle talk can look like talking to someone about Jesus. But if we talk to someone about Jesus in such a way that they are turned away from the Lord rather than turned to him, it's idle talk. No matter how we feel about it, no matter what our intentions are, if our talking does not produce life, it's idle talk. And so we pray, God, deliver me from talking in those ways. And idle talk is birthed from that lust for power that feels the need to control that feels the need to control what's happening in my life or someone else's life. So much about maturity, so much about sanctification is learning to not control what's happening in our lives and what's happening in the people around us. To trust that God is in control. I am not the captain of the boat. I'm in the boat. I'm not responsible to get the boat to the other side. I need to stay in the boat. I need to row when it's my time to row, but I'm not the master I'm being mastered. I'm not in control. And that realization is frightening, but also freeing. It's overwhelming, but it's healing. I'm not in control of my own life, much less the life of anyone else around me. So once you prayed, take this from me, he now prays and give to me. Chastity, humility, patience, and love. I want you to see, as we started with sloth at the innermost, moving out to despair, out to lust of power, and finally expressing itself in idle talk, see the movement in reverse. First, give me chastity. Give me self-control. Now, there's a kind of self-control, as I've been saying, that is lustful. That's the attempt to put your hands on your own life or other, other people's lives. But there's another kind of self-control that is the fruit of the Spirit, in which you are learning to live without controlling. It's precisely being able to be yielded to the Spirit that you're able to master your life in the right way rather than in the wrong way. And so he prays first for chastity. Help me to control myself. And mostly, we think of chastity, we associate that with sexuality, and, and for a good reason. But the primary expression of self-control is how you do or do not speak. 
That's why scripture over and over and over again talks about our words. And Jesus says, by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Because there's something about what the way we speak that reveals whether or not we're in control or the spirit is giving us self-control. It's telling right? the way that we speak. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, he has this list of acts of ministry what ministry looks like within a lot, within a community. And he says the first one is the gift of holding your tongue. And Bonhoeffer says the greatest ministry you will ever give anyone is not saying something that occurs to you. The greatest gift you will ever give anyone is just not saying what comes to mind. That's control. That's spirit-gifted self-control. Knowing you can say it, and it may be right, but it doesn't need to be said, and so I don't have to say it. That's how sanctification begins. It begins as we give God control of our tongue. And we say, Lord, you're going to dictate what I say, when I say it, and how I say it. And then when we learn that, we begin to learn humility. We begin to learn humility. Now notice, it's not that humility comes first and then controlling your tongue. It's controlling your tongue and then that leads to humility. In our, and I'm going to, this is meddling as we call it in our tradition, right? This is, this is off the script. But there's, there's this notion we have in our culture, and I won't even speak to where I think it came from, but we all have heard this, that sometimes you just have to vent, that if you pent it up inside, it will disease you. And so you have to vent it. You have to say it. Right? This is what makes Facebook work, right? You have to vent it. You have to say it. You've, you've got to express it. But what if the very expressing it is what gives it root in your life? What if it's not venting that saves you from the disease, but venting exposes you to the disease? I think what Ephraim prayer shows us is that when you learn to control your speech then you start to make room for God to give you different character. That when you, when you know something you want to say about someone and you choose not to say it, you take one step toward humility. And the next time you have something you could say that is true and you choose not to say it, you take another step toward humility. And over time, that discipline that the Spirit graces you with teaches you to be humble, to be broken before the Lord, to be prostrate before the Lord, to recognize that He is the master of your life. And then that humility slowly turns to patience. In fact, I think patience is really just humility happening over and over and over again. Patience is just the ability to remain humble moment after moment after moment after moment. And then finally, that expresses itself in love. Now, many of us, we have this way of imagining the Christian life. We think first about love and then about obedience. That it begins in the heart, God, give me love, and then I will obey. But I'm becoming more and more convinced that it more often works the other way. Teach me to obey so I can learn to love. Let me start by doing what you've told me to do. And as I do what you've told me to do, you will change my heart. You will change me from the inside as I'm doing what I'm required to do on the outside. As I put my body in the right place, you will change my heart. And if we're all waiting for God to change our hearts before we use our bodies differently, it may never come. 
It may never come. So what we have to do is keep putting our bodies in the right place. Keep not speaking when we shouldn't speak and speaking when we should speak. Continuing to be present when we need to be present and to be absent when we need to be absent until our hearts start to take on the character of Christ's heart. Ephraim says, give me chastity, give me humility, give me patience, give me love. And love will cure the sloth that's at the heart of who we are. Because at the end of the day, we're either moved by sloth or we're moved by love. And health, the health God wants for us is to have a life that is aflame with his love for everyone around us. And then Ephraim, having prayed all of that, he makes two more petitions. Grant me to see my own transgression and not to judge my brother or sister. There's so much here that I want to point to. I'll just say a few words about it. Notice, he's already gone through the process of healing. God has taken from him sloth and despair and given him self-control and love. And then he prays, show me my sins. Because it's only as we become holy that we can actually become aware of our true sins. Only the saints really know themselves as sinners. When we start out our walk for the Lord, we have a notion of our sinfulness that comes to us from the outside. But we're not truly aware of it as sin. I grew up in a, in a church that was very confident it knew what sins were. Most sins had to do with how women dressed, right? So if a woman cut her hair or wore makeup or wore pants, especially wearing pants or makeup to church, that was a sin. If a woman wore jewelry, that was a sin. Men, there weren't as many sins for men. It was mostly don't let your wives and daughters do that. <laughs> and, of course, men also couldn't drink and smoke and, and chew, which was an issue in, in my town, chewing. But there, we were very confident we knew what sins were. But as the Lord brought me into contact with people who were truly holy... I started to recognize that that's not how sin works at all. That when you think you know what sins are, you are most open to the true work of the enemy. He wants nothing so much as to make you confident that you know what your sins are. This is why the saint, after having God re renew his heart in love, begins to pray, Now show me my sins. You can't pray, show me my sins, until God has already healed your heart from the sloth and given you love. Because it's not until you love that you even know what sin is. You can't recognize the ways you sin against others. I can't recognize the ways I sin against others until I love them enough to recognize where my love is failing them. Recognition of our sins doesn't come at the beginning of our walk with God. It comes toward the end as we're maturing into Christ's likeness and we start to recognize, here's where I'm not who I should be. Here's where I'm not being what I have to be. So recognition that really, at its heart, sin is nothing more and nothing less than a failure to bring God's love to bear in people's lives. And any time I fail to do all I can to bring His love to bear, it is sin. That's what God cares about. But I can't even see that until he's healed me enough, filled me enough with the spirit of love that I can see what it looks like to love. 
And he says, show me my transgressions. And in his last petition, the pinnacle of his prayer is, and grant it to me not to judge my brother or sister. Now in our culture, with all the talk about tolerance and not judging one another, this could easily be misunderstood. And again, I want to say, if you start your prayer with, I don't want to judge people, you'll misunderstand. Ephraim doesn't begin by saying, God, help me not to judge others. He begins by saying, heal me. I'm diseased at my core. Give me love. Make me whole. And when we are humble and patient and loving, we are finally positioned to judge. Only those who are humble and loving can make a right judgment anyway. And the irony is, it's only those saints who have been sanctified to the point of loving humbly who can judge, who recognize that they don't want to judge. Do you see the irony? All of us who want to judge, want to judge because we're diseased. But those who can see, whose eyes have been opened, who are not blind, they're reluctant to judge precisely because they can see. So there's a kind of judgment God wants from us. Jesus says to the Pharisees, judge a righteous judgment. He condemns them for not judging rightly. Paul says to the Corinthians, you have to judge one another. He says to them in another place, judge yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. We have to judge. So there is a kind of judgment we're required to make. So what is it we're asking God to deliver us from? I think it's at least in part this. We're asking God to deliver us from the illusion that we need to say the last word about anyone. We all have to make provisional judgments. But there's a difference between making provisional judgments and making the last judgment. And what Ephraim is praying, I think, is God deliver me from closing down hope on anyone I know. Yes, I've known this person for 30 years. Yes, I've seen them make the same mistake, sin the same sins, cause the same damage over and over and over and over again. And yes, I must make a judgment at some level about how to interact with them. But keep me, Lord, from shutting down the possibility of their redemption. Even while I have to make judgments here, don't let me assume that that means there is no hope for them. That's sloth. The moment we lose hope for anyone... We are diseased with sloth, and it's love that keeps our arms always open, even when we know full well we've seen this person act in this way over and over and over again. This is why Jesus says, when Peter asks him, how many times do I have to forgive? Seventy times seven. In other words, endlessly. Because you can never stop hoping in the work of a God who does the impossible, who raises the dead. And that means no matter what you know about yourself or your neighbor, they are not hopeless. They are not hopeless. You can make a judgment about them at one level that's prudent, that you have to make, but never judge them in the sense that you close the door on their future because you don't know what God might do in this very moment in their lives. And this is where I want to turn our attention to the Gospel of John. The reading from the gospel for this week is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus is leaving Judea, going to Galilee in the north, and he's passing through Samaria. He's thirsty, tired, hungry. He sits at a well. His disciples go into the city to buy food. And while Jesus is at the well, 
a woman comes to draw water. Now, many preachers are convinced they know a lot about this woman that I don't think the text tells us. I heard a preacher yesterday, in fact, say, she came to the well a whore and she went back an evangelist. But we just don't know that about this woman. We know she was married many times and she's not married to this man now, but we don't know what their relationship is. We don't know that she's alone. All of you have heard sermons about this text that say she's coming alone because she's shamed and rejected by the society. The text doesn't say she's the only person at the well. It just says a woman came to the well. There might have been hundreds of other people gathered around this well. But Jesus was interested in talking to her. And so he asks her for a drink. And she says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't, we don't have conversations like these. And Jesus presses through and they begin to talk. Ask her to go and get her husband. She admits she doesn't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. This man you're with now is not your husband. She says, you, you, you know everything about me. And then she asks him a question about Messiah. When he comes, is he going to worship in this mountain where the Samaritans say he is going to worship or will he worship in Jerusalem? In other words, are we right as Samaritans or are you right as Jews? And that's where I want us to pick up the exchange. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. Just then. So here's the exchange. Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman, drawing her toward a realization of who he is. And the disciples show up at just that moment. And here's what I want to suggest to you first in thinking about judging others. Recognize that whenever you encounter anyone, no matter who it is, no matter when it is, you are walking up to them the moment after Jesus has spoken to them. You wake up in the morning, you see your wife, you see your kids, you see your husband. You're encountering them right after Jesus has spoken to them. You go to work, you encounter that annoying person that you have to work with. Jesus has just been speaking to them. Someone cuts you off in traffic, that's because they were distracted by Jesus speaking to them. <laughs> the disciples show up, Jesus is having a conversation with this woman. And notice, I love the humor of this. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? And what I love about this is it's clear these are the thoughts they have. What are you doing? Why are you speaking to her? But they at least had the grace not to say it. I don't know if your parents were like this. My parents would say, don't even think, right? You have room to think it. Just don't say it, right? The disciples are thinking it. What are you doing, Jesus? Why are you speaking to this woman? But they have learned enough to at least not speak. And maybe that's what real evangelism and discipleship looks like. Just not speaking while Jesus is talking to someone. They show up and they have the wisdom to just not get in the way. Now, again, this story is hilarious. Because the disciples do their best work when they're staying away and when they're staying quiet. The whole city converts, right? The whole city comes to see Jesus as Messiah, and all the disciples do is stay out of the way and stay quiet. And notice what the text says. That these thoughts come to their mind. They're astonished, but they don't say anything. Verse 28, 
Then the woman left her water jar. Not after Jesus speaks to her, but after the disciples come up and do not speak. Then she leaves. I wonder how many times I've walked into that moment without realizing it, in which Jesus was talking to someone. And instead of being quiet and recognizing the holiness of the exchange, I forced a question. I forced a conversation. And instead of that person being freed to go back to the city, they're stuck at the well talking to me. They're stuck at the well answering my questions. Jesus has just set her free from all of those notions about whether or not it's Judea or Samaria, whether or not it's worship in Jerusalem or worship in Mount Gerizim. He says the true worshipers worship in spirit. She's freed from all of those categories she's been burdened with all of her life, and yet their categories are going to impose that same restriction on her once again. How many times have I disrupted the work of the Spirit by forcing the same old tired questions on people who God just set free from those questions? Maybe the, the culmination of holiness in our life is just recognizing sometimes the most gracious thing we can do is just make room. Just make room. And say, I'm not going to say or do anything that would interfere with what God is doing. Now that's only possible once we have our hearts filled with love. So as we pray this prayer in closing, I want us to pray that we will be able not to judge in this way. That we will be able not to judge, and our not judging will be making room for what God wants to do in the lives of the people who are all around us. So let's come back to this prayer. I'll ask you to pray this with me. We read it to begin. I want us to pray it now. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But give, rather, the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to your servant. Yea, Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgression and not to judge my brother or sister. For you are blessed unto the ages of ages. Amen. Pastor, will you come and lead us in communion?